Black Hypothesis. Hey everybody, this is D Langston Jules. And Nefer Kiki. And we are Black, Black Hypothesis. Hypothesis. Yo, it is episode seven out here. Brah, 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 Took a while, but we are here. We made it. All right, last episode, you melanin popping. I think yes. that was a great conversation. It was. About how we're just superheroes, we have powers, and the more melanin you have, the better you are and more successful you'll be in your life. Tring electric. Uh, this episode is going to be. Even better, because guess what, Nefikiki? What? We have a guest. Really? Our first guest. Hit applause! <laughs> Alright, everybody. Coming all the way from the northeast of the United States. This person is Forbes 30 under 30. She is killing the game in the field of STEM. She has work, She's working in the field of genetics in New York City. And she just told me she got a cure for cancer. So, wow, how did you this guest? I don't know. It's I about didn't a, know you I don't, like this. Listen, listen, I got, I got some connections, all right, all right? But just in case y'all don't believe me, I'm going to show you for herself. All right, everybody, I want to introduce into the building... Paper made. Paper made. Woo! Paper made. Just in case anything I said is not true or I undersold what you're, how awesome you actually are, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, your career, your raison d'être? Why are you like doing what you do? Of course. Um, I, I definitely don't think you undersold me. Um, if anything, <laughs> I hope to achieve everything that you said. Um, but I do work in the field of genetics. Currently, I'm working in uh, hospital administration um, for a cancer hospital. And I do study public health to hopefully get into the field of exposure science soon. So, and hopefully still working with um, cancer patients or those at risk for developing cancers. Wow, what is exposure science? Exposure science is basically related to uh, the biology of cells being affected by uh, environmental factors. So, whether you're exposed to particular gases, uh, fluids, materials that could affect your cells in the way of causing mutation or um, adverse effects that kind of like uh, influence your body into doing the natural responses that mean this thing is not particularly good for you. We need to, you know, either get rid of it somehow or change our bodies to acclimate. Um, those, that's what exposure science is, figuring out what those things are, what it does to the body, and how to prevent or to kind of like mediate the responses that your body does. So in terms of exposure, what are like, I guess, what are the types of exposures that you would focus on? That, um, that I want to focus on primarily, I'd say that um, certain pathogens would be really nice, things that kind of affect epigenetics. So those causes could be air pollution, water pollution, particular genetic 
disorders or predispositions. So a lot of that comes down to like gene editing sometimes. Um, A lot of people do genetic screenings for those kind of predispositions to see if you are at risk of developing a cancer later on down the line. Mm. So some things are exposures to external factors, but some of these exposures are things that you are still born with. As far as public health goes, an exposure can really be anything. (laughs) It can be defined by anything, really. Sound, Sound, yeah, noise pollution can be (laughs) an exposure like as far as even height and altitude that can be an exposure there are many occupational scientists who work with people who work in aviation sciences astronauts um, pilots and such who are exposed to high altitudes for a very long time people need to understand how that's going to affect the body what it's going to do to them make sure that they can continue to have good health and that kind of thing so really there are so many different types of exposures which is why I think it's the best field for me because it keeps you on your toes kind of like always evaluating something new and that kind of thing okay like these exposures is it only useful to look at if it's over a long period of time or were you, if you were in that environment for like a day and mm. that's it and you just so it depends that. really there are different types of exposures cause different types of effects with the body so a detrimental exposure could be one that's very strong but you only had it once something mm. like radiation exposure okay that could be very detrimental with just one exposure, depending on how violent the exposure is or how much radiation you were exposed to. It could damage cells or cause illness with just one exposure. But something uh, like mold, you know, where you can be exposed for a pretty extended period of time, but it's not much mold or something like that. It's just a little bit. Something like that wouldn't be as bad. Maybe you would have like coughing or something like that, sneezing, allergy kind of uh, reactions. It wouldn't be as detrimental to you. So it's not like you're going to die from from allergies per se not unless you had (laughs) allergies prior to the mold that could be kind of uh not great but (laughs) if uh if you were healthy and you weren't predisposed to kind of like allergy symptoms and you were exposed to mold no it wouldn't be really detrimental to you okay all right cool this is some really fancy shit how did you get into this um I got into the idea of... So this is actually a very interesting story, I think. Mm -hmm. So I actually wanted to be pre-med. I wanted to go into medicine to become an MD. And I even did, you know, a couple of programs along those lines supporting that future for myself. Senior year in high school, going to Rutgers University Medical School for honors pre-med program and stuff was supposed to help solidify that future for me. But after going to university and taking a few classes, I learned, hey, you know what? A lot of these illnesses that people are dying from all the time or most people do have, they they could be cured. So when you really think about or they could be treated. So when you think about what it is a doctor does, most of it hospitals, doctors, most clinicians, it's focused around treatment. Your health is focused on treatment. And it's really cool, but it can get kind of boring. (laughs) In my opinion, it can get kind of boring because 
treatments are developed and you follow that kind of protocol. So when somebody comes in and they're showing certain signs and symptoms, there is something for you to do. You just need to find out what signs and symptoms they're doing or they have and find the associated treatment and make sure that that person gets it. Okay. The The difficulty lies in making that connection. Sometimes people come in with stuff and you're just like, what the fuck do you have? I don't know. Like, you know what I mean? You're trying to figure that out and that's where the skill lies. That's where you know, like, who's a great doctor and who's not so great. It's just like, do you know what you're seeing? Can you find it very, really quickly? The best doctors have been doing something very targeted, something that's very unique or something that not a lot of people can do the same way for a very long time so they know it in and out. You know what I mean? They can spot it from a mile away. And that's why they're in high demand. And that's why they get paid a lot of money. Because it's just like, you know this better than anybody else because you do it all the time. That's all you do, which is why they're highly specialized. That's what you call those physicians. They're specialists. But when you think about actually doing that, doing the same thing over and over and over again, it's, it's not the kind of thing that I saw myself doing eventually. Like, so, um, I did want to work with people. I did want to work in health still. And I wanted to be able to travel and speak to people face to face though, working with them clinically on a day-to-day basis was not going to be for me because also patients don't really listen to their doctors. I don't know if you know this, but I'm the kind of person where if I tell somebody to do something to make them healthier and they're not listening to me, I'm going to be like, listen, you going to keep coming to me? Are you going to keep spending your money on coming to me? Or yeah, come on now. Like, what are we doing here? You know? So, um, I would definitely keep it real (laughs) with my patients. And, um, I still plan to do that even in public health, but it's it's something that I feel I was going to be better off in the research world rather than in the clinical world. So after taking my university classes and realizing that these illnesses like, you know, uh, cardiac diseases, hypertension, diabetes, these are like some of the diseases that like have really high incidence, have the prevalence of the disease is great. Um, they're all treatable and people generally know what to do to prevent them or to treat them. Mm -hmm. So the prevalence really doesn't, it it wasn't clicking to me. Like, so why is it that so many people are being diagnosed with these diseases if we have an idea of how to prevent it? You know what I mean? And that's when I realized that the issue really wasn't treatment. The issue was more public health and preventing disease rather than treating diseases because we are better at that than we are (laughs) at preventing them. And to me, the way I was raised and everything, I come from a Jamaican background. My my mom is Jamaican, my dad and everybody in my family. I was born in Jamaica myself. Shout so out, that's what you say, right? Um, yeah, so so from from that kind of heritage, my mom always used to say, you know, prevention is better than a cure. And they usually say that for social things, like, you know, uh, when you get in trouble, it's always like, listen, keep yourself, keeping yourself out of trouble basically is better than finding a way to get out of trouble. Mm-hmm. It's just always better that right. way. So that never helps when you're already in trouble, right? It's just they, like, <laughs> they only they, tell you that after you're already in trouble. Exactly. Like, that's not what I, I'm I, well, I'm already here. So what do I do? <laughs> right, I right, really right. just want the answer now. Um, <laughs> 
thanks, thanks, Yoda. Right. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, so. Uh, that's that's when I kind of like decided I'm gonna try to work more on the preventative side rather than the treatment side and and that for me became environment and environmental science because most of these diseases they are the prevalent diseases the diseases that most people have the reasons they have them are environmental factors mostly Mm -hmm. rather than clinical or genetic predispositions or anything like that. It's mostly environmental and we kind of just ignore that mostly just because there's more money to be made in treatment and clinical research. There's just more money to be made there. The businesses, exactly. The businesses are well-developed there in that uh, faction of health. Um, Whereas when it comes to like public sciences and the public sector, it's kind of like, uh, well, if you're wealthy, you can prevent those things from happening to yourself. And if you're not so wealthy, good luck. So, (laughs) you know, so that's why I kind of felt like um, if you're going to be changing you know, how often people are diagnosed with diabetes or hypertension, if you're going to be develop diseases from impure water or air or any other, you know, environmental factor like that, you're probably going to need to work in the environmental sector. Mm -hmm. And that is a shared space. So it makes it hard to kind of like get a lot done there. But I feel like... What do you mean my shared space? So... Shared space, the environment is something, it's a common good. So it's basically like, I'm going to go outside and I'm going to breathe the air, the same air you're going to breathe. I can't make it so that I breathe my own air and you have your own air. It's not, it doesn't work like that. So it's kind of like, if I'm wealthy, am I going to invest in your air being better kind of thing? Like, because I really only care about my stuff. Right. So that's that's what makes common goods more difficult to invest in. If you can kind of like privatize it, then that's what makes it profitable. So it's like water is supposed to be a common good too, mm-hmm. right? But you can make money from privatizing water. That's how you get bottled water. That's how you get purification systems. That's how you get, you know, like if you you have to think of privatizing something in order to make a company feel like it's worth investing in or worth owning, it has to be something that they can have for themselves. Where that's not really what public health is about. Public health is more about making sure that statistically speaking, everybody can benefit from a common good. Okay. So Actually, I actually did not know that, that was what public health was at all. I thought it was more like... So I was going to say something stupid. That, never mind. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay. like, so, People probably think the same thing. Yeah, okay, so I you thought public know. health was like, you're just putting together <laughs> sex ed classes. And, uh-huh. and, and uh, yeah, you're just... Employee wellness programs. Uh-huh. Right, right, yeah. Things like that, like social... Like, oh, I guess that's not too far from what you said, but like more like social little programs will just throw out there to try to help people and do that whole prevention thing but not but it's not like as specific the way you described Mm. it there are different sections or concentrations in public health so one can be that 
family health, community health aspect that you're talking about. Those public health professionals do create education programs. They work on sex education with, you know, high schools and communities working on preventing non-communicable diseases from spreading and such. Mm -hmm. Flyers, those pamphlets that you read when you go to a hospital, when you go to a clinic and stuff, most of the people developing those flyers and the informational posters that you see on the walls, many of those people are public health professionals. There's also biostatistics. And those people do work a lot in public health because when it comes to developing a drug, when it comes to implementing, you know, health codes and things like that, you need to know a lot of information about the public and the people that you're working with in order to really set some standards for whatever it is that you're doing, the policies or the the research project that you're managing. So if you're developing a drug, you want to know at which rate, you know, these people are getting better or getting worse. You want to know how much of this do people need to be better or worse? You know, who in the general public are we selecting for this particular research study of what, you know, proportion to the general public is this group and such so that you can kind of have an understanding with the outcome of your study, how it would work out if you applied that same thing to the general public. You're going to need a lot of statistical analysis in order to make that work. And there are epidemiologists who the job of an epidemiologist is really to kind of analyze what types of diseases are, you know, prevalent or in and with prevalent, I mean, like how what types of diseases are affecting what portion of the population, Mm -hmm. you know, so and that just means like how much of this disease basically is there. Right. And when it comes to that data, it's kind of like they'll they'll sample populations. They'll take a group of people that's supposed to reflect the general public. How do they get that data? Um, so the way that they select these people is supposed to be really important. <laughs> that's yeah, a really important like process. Right because exactly. <laughs> you guys talk a lot about like how things can negatively affect the black community. So in research studies, which you've spoken about in previous episodes, that is something that has affected negatively uh, the black community many times is because sometimes when it comes to research studies, the selection process for composing that sample population that I'm talking about is not as strict as it should be. Or, and sometimes it's too strict, you know, where the sample population, yeah, sometimes the sample population doesn't really reflect the general public in the way that it should, Mm -hmm. excluding people like uh, black people from being a part of that process. So when a drug does eventually come out onto the market or when a technology is now available for people to purchase, it's not something, it may be something that benefits the subpopulations, like, you know, when you're thinking about race, black people, it may be something that benefits us, but does it benefit us in the way that the peop- that it benefited the people in your sample? Or does it, does it still work differently for us than it did for the people within the sample population? 
So um, that's something that I feel that scientists are trying to work on a little bit more is to make sure that they're including a lot of different types of people in their research so that they know how exactly it's affecting different races, different ethnicities, you know, and people who have been exposed to other things. Speaking of statistics, you know, they always say like black people are the highest in hypertension and Mm -hmm. diabetes and Do you think that's like a sampling issue or do you think that could be actually like a real thing? That's a very interesting question. Uh, It's actually a huge part of one of the papers that I'm writing right now. One of the papers that I'm writing right now, I think that you guys will actually find it interesting because (laughs) uh, the topic is basically the health issue regarding high hypertensive rates in women of maternal age in <laughs> in Haiti. Oh, yeah, God. and I heard from the previous uh episodes that you guys are Haitian, right? Yes. Yeah, so it's it's they have Haiti actually has a huge issue with hypertension. The whole world does actually. It's not just the US. The mm-hmm. whole world has a hypertension issue, but um for Haiti it's just it's just really really bad uh Maybe. there. Mhm. And for for black people in general, it is understood that, yes, they have higher rates of hypertension and heart disease and, and different comorbidities related to heart disease. Mm-hmm. That, I think, is as far as the research that I've done in it, there are many different reasons. Um, but a lot, I think there can be a lot more research in this regard, uh, whether or not there will be or when there will be. Mm-hmm. There is much to say about that because, like mm-hmm. we've already spoken about, um, people have to want to do it and there has to be like funding for it and all that, which requires people to care what's happening to the subgroup of black people that are being affected. So that's something that maybe very wealthy black person would look into supporting. <laughs> but mm-hmm. basically, I think it's a lot to do with culture. I think culture has a huge impact on that comorbidity or that diagnosis of high blood pressure and hypertension. It's what we eat. It's historical too. There's a historical reason for the the kinds of foods that we eat and how it impacts you know our blood pressure and stuff like that because a lot of the way that a lot of the um recipes that we kind of have and pass down have been developed from parts of our lives or parts of our ancestors lives where they weren't in the best of spaces and places they didn't have much to their disposal so right. they were required to kind of like preserve their foods in particular ways that involved a lot of salt. Uh, Salt does have a great preserving property to it. Mm -hmm. So when you think of salt fish, when you think of like the ways that we can dry our meats and cover it with salt so that it lasts a really long time Mm -hmm. when you are a slave, when you live on an island which does not have like a lot of electricity. Like Haiti has a a huge issue with with acquiring electricity for the general public. Mm -hmm. So when you don't know how you're gonna keep something, especially something as as important as food and nourishment for your body, um, yeah, you kind of have to look into the things that you can afford to use that could mm-hmm. still keep it. And salt is one of those really inexpensive compared to like 
dehydration. You're going to have to get, there are other means of preserving food. It just requires technology. It requires, you know, uh, cold. It requires freezing something. And um, those are other things that, you know, aren't as available to mm -hmm. people. So I think that black people are used to now those recipes of salt being heavily used in foods. When you think of chickens that we make, sauces that we make and stuff, things things kind of tend to taste a little different, you know, if they don't got no seasoning, we're just yes. like, girl, I don't know about that. I don't know if I want to eat all of that. You know, it needs some seasoning, you know, like if you, you start to tell people that it yeah. needs more, it needs more. And um, that's something that I think, yes, it is. It's in black culture, you know, because we'll tell other people like, um, Mm -mm, I don't want none of that. It, it don't. It doesn't taste right. good to us mm -hmm. for it not to have the salt that is over the recommended amount that we should be consuming a day. So it kind of takes people to be. People need to be aware of that. That what they're used to is unhealthy, and they need to like train their bodies to accept you know less than they're used to and just it, the thing is like once you train yourself to eat like that then it won't be as noticeable after mm. a while that's actually i trained myself to stop con consuming sugar in my beverages that exact way sugar either yes exactly that's how i cut it out because the thing is like you really don't know how much sugar you're consuming sometimes sugar, everything anyway you and know then when I mean? you eat it's absolutely so every goddamn thing like why is there so much sugar everywhere <laughs> sugar they'll put it in there it's like it like, is literally <laughs> everywhere one time the the way that i knew one time i was a freshman in college i went to a mcdonald's and it was the first time I ever saw sweet tea being made. Mm -hmm. The sweet tea at McDonald's, they literally take a whole bag of sugar and they're like just dumping the entire bag into it's the same size container you always see of tea. Like the, the jugs with the, you know, Ooh, the okay. cooler. It's the same size jug that they flip over on the coach. Three pound bag. Yeah, exactly. Okay. But it's not a three pound bag. That's just the first bag. They oh. put in a whole nother bag. So it's just like... That's a lot of sugar that they're using. I'm surprised and they're even using real sugar. I thought they were using. I no, that, no, it, it was sugar that they were putting in. But this was in Pennsylvania, so like things are different, you know, oh, okay. in different spaces. But oh, okay. um, it was real sugar that they put in there, and people don't realize that with something like sugar, it does take your your body is biologically kind of like set up to take a while to notice how much sugar you're consuming. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I feel like a lot of people don't realize the way that evolution and selective behaviors have kind of like made it just due to natural selection. We kind of like the things that are healthy for us or good for us back in the day, we noticed less and the things that were bad for us back in the day, we noticed very quickly. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to something being sweet, sugar was going to help us have energy, right? To, to do things, to be able to walk for a long period of time. And that kind of starch and energy rich material you need to know when there's it is in abundance, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how early man, that's what we'll mm -hmm. call it, early man mm -hmm. could 
used to be able to do what they needed to do. Whereas bitter tastes were recognized as something that was going to be harmful for them, something that may contain a poison, something that may contain something that was going to hurt them. Hmm. So that kind of taste needed to be acknowledged even quicker. Like you need to be able to tell before you consume a lot of it, right. you need to be able to tell this is not good I'll for say, you. Right. Okay. Exactly. So now through natural selection, that's something and natural selection selection is basically just due to that fact those animals those early people who were able to tell yes this is poisonous or i taste something bitter in here they lasted they survived whereas the people who could not tell that they were eating something that may contain a poison they obviously died why because they ate it and they died they ate something poisonous they ate something bitter maybe and it wasn't good for them and because the people who survived obviously got the chance to procreate, we inherit those same traits because we are their descendants and not those who passed before they had the chance, mm -hmm. right? So those traits that we inherited, they matter now still. And sometimes people don't realize like, yes, if I'm consuming sugar, like I taste the sweetness but a subtle sweetness a, a hint of sugar is still a substantial amount of sugar to you when it comes to the way that your body is processing the sugar and when it comes to something very sweet like a snicker bar which right. i think snicker bars are like ridiculously sweet right. there's just too much sugar in there mm -hmm. the fact that you are overloading your body with that much sugar it's like it doesn't know where to put it all because you really just don't need it. You know, you're over consuming and that's what kind of throws your body out of whack, you know? So you can see how, like, sorry, my, my nephew, when he's little and they give him juice, he just goes insane. Mm -hmm. And so I'm like, stop giving him juice. But then he's like, cries about it. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a real issue. And then I get in trouble because I'm telling people how to parent. Yeah. But it's like, you can see the effects of sugar on like little see kids. That yeah. That, that has such small bodies. It's that energy. It's like you need, and it's good. Sugar is good. And that's the thing. You don't want, you don't want it to seem like you're saying sugar is bad for them. You should still be able to have sugar. It gives you energy and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But you just need to be able to tell what is too much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can only be able to tell if you are, thinking about it if you're constantly and it it sucks for a little while but you're going to be able to naturally tell soon but it's just a matter of retraining yourself and just taking a really good look at okay how much sugar is it that i need how much salt is it that i need to survive once you understand what that is and you can kind of like make the connection to what that taste is mm -hmm. then you can kind of implement it in your life at a healthy standard you know, but until you know what that is, you you really just what are what is there to do but do what you've always done. All right. Okay. I actually wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you another question. Uh, in your experience, has do you would you feel like race or gender impacted you throughout your collegiate career or professional as well? And if uh, so, like give us some examples yeah, and yeah. like um, just your thoughts, just in general, on what you've learned from. Okay. So race, uh, I think kind of has somewhat affected me, but how is, I feel a little complex. And as far as my collegiate careers, I've gone to, initially I went to a, well, university period is kind of like predominantly white, right? Like I wanted to kind of say like, initially it was a predominantly white school, but then like the second one was too. So... <laughs> 
So yeah, so going to university in general, it, it was literally the first time that I was surrounded by people of other races to that degree, mm-hmm. I would say. Yeah. I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. Most of the schools that I went to were predominantly black mm-hmm. until university. Mm-hmm. So that was something for me that was interesting but it didn't take too long to get used to so that it was refreshing honestly for me i think that when i first went to university i was considered an international student i know it's difficult to believe why is it difficult to believe or why did i oh yeah so basically i was i'm an immigrant like i told you so at the point where i started going to university i was still at a particular level of my documentation that i wasn't i didn't yet have a green card So the way that I applied to school was a pending citizenship status. Mm -hmm. And so the way that that school accepted me was as an as an international student, which required me to like go to an initial international student like uh, networking class type of thing where I met most of my friends. That's so weird because you. Just... I was living in the states literally for I don't know how many years. Probably by that time, like eleven years or something. Okay. Yeah, by by the time I started university, like eleven years, I was already here. So it was kind of odd. (laughs) I didn't actually keep going to the international student like get togethers. I only went to the first two Mm -hmm. until I was just like, they were talking about how to acclimate to the States. I'm like, what you got to do? And I was just like, okay, I'm done. There's no reason for me to be here. But I met most of my friends that way. I had friends from like Turkey and Germany and, you know, Brazil and all these places. So I was kind of, I, w- I kind of liked the, the fact that I was accepted as an international student just because I was exposed to a lot of stuff, I think, that right. way. So, and so that kind of had an impact on me. Not only being black, but being an immigrant as well kind of impacted the way that I started university in general. I was kind of like just thrown into this, you know, space of being surrounded by so many people who were totally different than me, had totally different experiences. And I learned a lot because of that. And I got to know a lot about different cultures that way. Mm. When I started working, I think that my blackness was kind of impacting how I felt I didn't belong at my particular job. Like I told you, I work at a cancer hospital. Right. Um, and it's, it's some of the people that I work with are some of the brightest minds in the entire world. You know, people travel from all over the world to come and be treated for cancers or be screened before their risk of developing cancer. And, um, so that was somewhat intimidating to me and I didn't realize it, but there was something that I learned afterwards was called imposter syndrome and like how you feel like, do I really belong here? Like you feel like you have to prove it to yourself. Like, no, I've done what needs to be done in order to earn this space here and, you know, be talking to these Harvard grads and like patients who have been like all over the world seeking treatments and decide here's the best place and you're the best person to be talking to about this particular thing. So I, yeah, it it did take me a second to be like, okay, pull it all together. But yeah, and, and, and so far I have, I've managed to do that just fine. So I think that's something that a lot of other people may experience too being in a space where you feel like you may not see a lot of people who look like you and you may think like 
does everybody else know that I feel like I don't know if I belong here or not? Like, does everybody else know that I'm still trying to prove to myself that, you know, I'm just as bright as them? But the truth is, yes, you are. (laughs) That's why you were hired. It's why you've graduated. It's why you're still on the road to becoming who you want to become. And it's just another, you know, feat. It's just another thing to work through. And, and they're not alone. That's the other thing. They're not alone in feeling that way. There are a lot of people who deal with that kind of, like, that kind of circumstance. I read that somewhere, like, a majority of millennials have that. Feeling, right? Like, it's just like... Place for some reason. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a difficult situation. Myself included situation. at times. Honestly. Yeah, it's a difficult situation. But... Yeah. Hey. Make it till you make it. Yeah, yeah, right? <laughs> and then the truth is, you end up... The truth is, we end up outperforming a lot of people. And that's the thing. Like, it's, mm-hmm. it's just like when you feel like you need to prove to everybody why you belong there, you actually end up being a top performer. Right. So I think that it's... Though it was something that I worked on, it's also something that benefited me. So there is also that. Do you have any advice for high schools or universities on how they can increase um, student applications, the STEM programs like a MPH, any other like research type of um, programs? Yeah. Black people, yeah. So I think that... So black um, people, go ahead. <laughs> for recruiting black people, a number one thing is that some some black institutions, black predominantly black areas, they're not always exposed. The children there aren't always exposed to the possibilities of different career types. And like I told you guys, what I originally wanted to do was become an MD. And the health field for me and the way that I wanted to get involved was really the way I was thinking about it was from a place of authority. Like I wanted to be able to say something and for the people around me to know that I was an expert, I was a professional and they should listen to me, right? As a kid, that's what I'm thinking. And how do I feel that way? Who is that health professional? That's a doctor. If a doctor tells you to do something, if they prescribe something, that means it's for you. You need to do it. It would be in your best interest to do it. And here are the consequences if you don't, you know. And so for me, that was the kind of authority I think that I wanted to to preserve for myself. I wanted to make sure that I was able to acquire that kind, that level of authority. But the truth is that there are many avenues of acquiring that same authority. And the space, the science space is just so huge there are so many different subjects that people can become experts in and they are generally all necessary. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So they all contribute to the development of the society and they all contribute to the development of a people. And we kind of have to just figure out what our niche is in that. You know what I mean? What is it that you... People always like to talk about, you know finding that thing that you're great at and a job that you love. And I swear to you, <laughs> like now that I'm working and stuff, now that I'm, I'm going to school full time, I'm working full time. And I realize that that is a load of 
bullshit. That is so much bullshit, and I wish people would stop saying that to kids. That's one thing I don't think should be said when they go to a black school, because black students are going to be like, you think I just want to be working for somebody else my entire life? Like, how about I just don't work? Right. That's what I would have told them. You know what I mean? It's just it's just not realistic. Setting up a lot of people for failure. I, I it's setting them up for failure, and I feel like you tend to just overthink, like, is this what I want to do? Is this going to make me happy? Is this going to make me happy? So they're searching for something that I feel really doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. So going to a black school, I think the number one thing to do for recruiting them for particular majors is, one, explain the variety there is in that field and the things that are available to them in that field to pursue, like, and how that field could be growing in the future so that they know that there is flexibility, that there is some type, they can get a degree in this and do this, 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 and this and beyond. Do you know what I mean? Because the truth is in today's day and age, nobody wants to feel like overly committed to one particular thing. I feel just because for our age group and even underneath us, we've seen a lot of like flip-flopping. Yeah. <laughs> in you know a lot of spaces in the private sector public sector like everywhere we've seen people you know shortchange us <laughs> we've seen people kind of like go back and forth and forth on what they want for us and kind of talk about you know who we are and i think that a lot of young people at this point want to define that for themselves they want to be able to say who they want to be and kind of set their own thing up just so that they have some type of standard that is self-imposed rather than something that somebody else is going to be able to take away at any point. Right. Um, so that flexibility is really important. And for MPH, I would say that there there's a lot of flexibility. Like I told you, a few of the uh, concentrations that there are. But um, as far as what you can do in those concentrations, though, that's also flexible, you know. So not only can you work in epidemiology, biostatistics, you know, family and community health, environmental health sciences, uh, health policy. Those are all concentrations that are available. But uh, and even nutrition, nutrition health, that's also a part of public health, but you can also work in different fields and different sectors with those concentrations. The public sector, the government hires a lot of public health workers um, and they work in in groups like the CDC, which is a disease controlled, a disease control organization that kind of like manages a lot more on the epidemiology side. Mm -hmm of some of the like risks and and issues that may arise things like the zika virus and all that kind of stuff that you hear mm -hmm. could have some serious health effects on the population can we pause on this this is how, how do you feel about the cdc telling people not to wash your chicken this is not serious but i just want to know what you think about that <laughs> no, this is very serious actually now yeah, we got to the root of this yeah just pausing the serious conversation talk about Telling people one. not to wash their chickens. Yes. Right, I saw that article too. Yeah. Let's, let's get your insights. I think that... Because the way you explain how public health works, it seems like there has to be some sort of cause that they're going to want to pursue. And then they have to gather data and then they use it to affect policy, right? 
So this yeah. article, it wasn't, I don't think this article was just some, you know, fly by the city, your pants thing that they just wrote. Hey, I don't think y'all should write, wash your chicken anymore. Like, what do you think is behind yeah. that? Because that's being super culture, weird. Yeah. It's like, we wash our to chicken. To tell us not to wash food. Most black people outside of Caribbean culture wash their oh, chicken. Oh, so oh, I just what do you think? Know. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that when it comes to... Like, what's the point? <laughs> okay, a lot of people aren't really careful when it comes to raw meat. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people can end up doing a lot more harm than good when it comes to handling meats. So, basically, it's like this. You're going to think of all the people that are handling their meats in a particular type of way. And what's the easiest and best way to deal with all these people at one time? That's That's the... It's a generalization, okay? It's, sure. I don't think it's something that needs to be, for me personally, okay. a part of my everyday life. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Just because I can handle my meats the way that I know it should be handled. But um, when it comes to some of the poisons and some of the toxins that can be on meats, are you going to be able to know, like, okay, I touched this part of the chicken. I need to wash my hands right now before I touch something else. Um, am I going to be able to clean my sink, my countertops? Where You know what I mean? Like, there are the transferability of some of the, the uh, bacteria and other toxins on raw meat, especially chicken rather than other other meats because chicken is actually one of those meats that is just like really problematic yeah raw (laughs) it's it's really problematic and a lot of people like act like pork is such a bad thing but chicken is like it's problematic so i just feel like there's a lot of misconceptions and there's a lot of misunderstandings with how that meat is supposed to be handled and because of that you end up with a lot of issues and people aren't actually as clean as they think that they are Mm. you know people like to think that you know with all the things that you're touching and doing during the course of the day the way that you're managing your own health and the way that you're washing your hands is enough and the truth is it's really not and you put yourself at risk a lot of the time by doing something that you think is supposed to be healthier that isn't actually healthier because of the way that you're doing it. And I think that that kind of paper is supposed to be addressing that. It's an easy way to kind of like address a general public or a general issue. And that's why it's kind of like, what should I, that doesn't make any sense to me. It's because people aren't really doing things the way that they should be doing them for it to be beneficial to them. Okay, that was a great answer, but I think you dirty as hell if you don't wash your chicken. Yeah, That's you gross. have to put the lemon, <laughs> yeah. the lemon everything. Vinegar, we call that mouth pop. We call yeah. that mouth pop in Haiti. What are you doing <laughs> some stuff like that? Mouth pop is like you just dirty. You're not civilized. Like you, you really, yeah. you're pretty much an invalid if you're doing stuff yes. like that. I don't and, know if y'all have a name. And the same in Jamaica. The same. Uh, in what, Jamaica. Y'all, what y'all call people that don't clean their chicken? Like. Dutty. Dutty. Right. <laughs> I'm learning mad new words today. Epigenetics and Dutty. <laughs> All right. So what should we be on the lookout for in the field of public health? Like, what do you think we should know uh, as um, people of color or black people? Is there like a zombie apocalypse coming? Uh, Is there some disease? Oh, 
like is there some widespread Tuskegee thing that they're putting in the water? Is there like some sort of, mm. you know? So, so one huge thing that's been talked, everybody's been talking about is like, should I or should I not vaccinate my kids? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. Yeah, and get us on the list. <laughs> Cautious. <laughs> So, like, I think that as far as black people are concerned, um, because I have been approached by a friend who is who is literally telling me that he doesn't know if he should vaccinate his kid or not because and he's also black. He doesn't know if he should vaccinate his kid or not. And I should, like, let him know what I'm learning so that he can, like, make his decision. The thing is, when it comes to vaccinating children, I think, obviously, parents have the right to decide what they want to do or not do. But they should be very well informed before making that decision. And a lot of people just make the decision before really... They hear things, you know, and they understand some things, but... The level of research, I think, that needs to be done to make this kind of decision is, like, key. And it's a lot more than a lot of people are doing. So the first thing I would say is understand, you know, as a Black parent, that your child will be at risk (laughs) of contracting particular diseases if they are not vaccinated. And the second one is that immunization works best if... 95% of the population is immune. (laughs) So that's kind of why a lot of public health professionals push vaccinations. It's really for the good of the general public. Like maybe your child won't develop that particular disease, but um, they become a carrier at some point and then come into contact with somebody else who is not immunized and that person develops a disease, it kind of just like does help the general public for everybody to kind of be immune. Okay. So I think that as black people, we are generally at risk for a lot of stuff. And we're kind of like always fighting against something or trying to accomplish something or be better at something. So just really do the research in considering. And one of the papers that kind of propelled this whole idea of not vaccinating kids was dispelled. Like it's, it's, it was not a proper paper uh, or anything like that. So that's the first thing. But the questioning of whether or not people want to continue vaccinating their kids is still valid because it's still a thing that's happening. So um, just consider the fact that do you want to, you know, make or leave your child, your black child at risk biologically as well as socially, as well as culturally, Boom. as well as everything. Like ah, you just, ah. you already have so many things, you know, working against your kids. So I think that if, if polio cannot be on that list, <laughs> if, you know, you know, TB cannot be on that list. Just take it off right now. You know, if you can just, you can just, if, if you can make your kid's life any easier at all, I would, I would probably do that for mine. So that's my answer to that question for the black community. Cause I have been asked. So I do want to give that, obviously it's the parent's decision, but most immunizations, most vaccinations, there is a there's an ideal time frame to do them so uh, most of them are within the first couple of years of birth and then the next 
time frame that's best for another group of vaccinations and immunizations are like it's like the 10 12 years old age range so if you're missing those dates those times for those kids it's less than ideal you know what i mean it's it works best for their bodies if they get them at that point so just know that there are some decisions to be made prior to getting pregnant Mm -hmm. and there's some key decisions that need to be made prior to puberty (laughs) and and make them and make sure that you won't regret them and make sure that they're the kind of decision that you can be confident about okay so that sounds like just with anything just make sure you make an informed decision and a very informed decision and know that you know not vaccinating your kid does mean you know exposing them (laughs) (laughs) exposing them to the risk of developing the diseases that you're not vaccinating them for they will be able to catch them so those diseases many of them have some of them have been eradicated because of vaccination so yes we don't deal with them anymore that is true but the reason that they were eradicated was because of vaccinations. I told you that means 95% of the population was immune. Therefore, the transferability was just cut to the point where you can't be affected. Why? Because you're, you're immune to the, most of the population is immune to the disease. And the chances of somebody who was immune, who's a carrier, um, meeting and interacting with somebody who wasn't immune was just so low that it just didn't happen. So that, that kind of situation happen because of that does that mean that that disease can never happen again you can test it out if you want to like go ahead and not vaccinate most of the kids in the month we'll find out we can (laughs) we can we can see you know part one of this research research study is is now all right all right cool so if anyone wanted to like reach out to you to ask you any more questions about what you do or maybe they were thinking about um, pursuing uh, a master's in public health or some other facet of public health, where can they reach you? They can message me on Instagram. My name is papermade92. Yeah, uh, P-A-P-E-R-M-A-D-E 92. We loved having you, Papermade. Thank you, thank you. I Hopefully really love being back. here. I will I will definitely look forward to being invited back. Real talk, you are the best guest we have ever had on the show. I know it's that has you, nothing to do with one, me being the first. But I swear right? to God, I feel like we can have another four or five and that's still you still might hold that title. I don't know. <laughs> I, Your jersey might be too. going up in the rafters. Real talk. I, mm-hmm. Real talk. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um yes, yeah, so I think we should wrap it up. Paper made. Thank you for joining us. This is awesome. Awesome discussion. Thank Anybody you for that's listening, that listening, there's like so much to take from this. Um, I feel like if you are interested in the field of STEM, you maybe to take away some of the things that she said was that um, she wanted to do something, and then she looked into it in terms of being a doctor. Then she took stock of her interests and her values, and um, where where in society she thought she could make the best difference. And she said it best in in another part in this episode where she said, there's a place for you somewhere in STEM, right? Because everything is useful and there's so many things, so many problems in society that uh, we need to work on. So please take that from this. And I just want to say, if you're interested in also being on the show, there might be some other field of STEM that I had no idea fucking existed and probably other people too. And you think there'll be a value to um, 
discuss it with us and talk about it, you'll hit us up on our IG. That's Black Hypothesis. Or you can send us an email at blackhypothesis at gmail.com. And uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, if you like this episode, give us five stars. If you didn't like this episode and you think it sucked, which I don't think you did, so don't even fucking try. Give us five <laughs> I stars know anyway. Because <laughs> <laughs> we want one five stars. I'm trying to like be. I'm trying to be inclusive yeah, of everyone. Not gonna like this episode. Uh, yeah, in case for the like one point two thousandth of a percent of people that fall in that category, okay. give us five stars anyway, and then uh, give us some uh, constructive feedback. And I think that's all I have. So paper made. Shout out to once again. That was awesome. And peace, love, stem. Let's do it peace, love, stem. One more time. <laughs> Let's how about we do this all okay. together? Right, on three, peace, love, <laughs> stem. So on three. Okay. okay. On I have to say three. Okay. On three, three, peace, peace love, love, and stem. stem. I like that. <laughs>